Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. So last week was the 20 year anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which marked kind of the, the last major episode of the worst foreign policy decisions in U.S. history probably. Um, all made under the Bush administration with an assist from some congressional Democrats, but certainly led by the right-wing neocon cabal. And for that anniversary, I'm doing a whole episode on not just Iraq, but the whole global you know, war on terror. And the title here is The Global War on Terror and the Iraq War were intellectually and morally bankrupt from the start. And the reason I want to kind of make that point, that's my value add here, is that even though you can see what happened, you know, as the wars progressed, both Afghanistan and Iraq, and later on, you know, in 2004 and 5 and 6, start seeing how badly they went, and then kind of say they were bad decisions. I'm going to make the case that these were horrible decisions from the start before they were even executed. Because there are many people who make the claim that, oh, well, they were good ideas, but they were incompetently executed and implemented if only we had done X, Y, and Z. And that gives people kind of an out. Like, hey, the idea was good, but it's just the wrong people were in charge. And if only they had done what I suggested. And that's a cop-out. And so I was one of the few, again, I'm not a foreign policy expert. I didn't have New York Times op-eds. I wasn't, you know, out there leading any movement. But I was one of the few who was making a consistent intellectual argument to my colleagues, to my friends, that this was going to turn out badly because it was poorly conceived intellectually and morally. Right? And again, it's easy to see the failures now, the horrible and chaos and death in Iraq over the last 20 years, as well as the Syrian civil war, the formation of ISIS, the emboldening of Iran, right? all of which were direct results of the Iraq war. But again, I want to make the case, and I'm going to lay out clearly, that the entire project, the whole entire global war on terrorism, the Afghan invasion and occupation, the Iraq war invasion occupation were ill-conceived from the start and they were destined to be a stain on American history and the world and in fact they are crimes against humanity now again this is what I've been saying consistently for over 20 years since really September 11 2001 and I wish I hadn't been right okay but my views that again, I stated on the day the World Trade Centers were attacked by bin Laden and Al-Qaeda have turned out to be 100% accurate. Not 90% accurate, not 95% accurate, 100% accurate. 
And this is not because I had a crystal ball or because I'm particularly smart, but because anyone with a basic understanding of history and American politics plus a little common sense could have predicted these outcomes. And so I'm going to walk you through this, how it didn't take a lot. You just had to not be caught up in the emotions, caught up in the hysteria, caught up in the groupthink. If you were thinking clearly at this moment, it was easy to see, right? Now, again, I'm not generally a fan of armchair quarterbacking. And of course, hindsight is 2020. But these points I've been making for 20 plus years, and I'm going to try to put it all together, you know, in a 20, 30 minute podcast here to provide some additional context to just kind of walk you through this. And let me make clear that speaking intelligently about foreign policy and war is not some form of do your own research bullshit like that's been going on since COVID, right? I'm not opining on deep medical science or nuclear physics for which I have no expertise and can't possibly know the truth. Foreign affairs are that interesting part of kind of politics and society where well-informed citizens can and should have a voice because people without fancy titles, again, with a little common sense, a little understanding of history, can really be accurate, right? This is not the same as deep technical knowledge for which the average person doesn't know anything. And again, I have more knowledge than the lay person. I've taken courses on international relations. I have a lot of colleagues who work in politics and foreign policy. I probably read more than your average American, but what I the knowledge I have is not that unique, and I didn't need a special degree. I didn't need to work in the State Department or the Department of Defense for decades, right? Now, of course, I'll admit I have no expertise on military logistics and or fighting wars, but that's not the point. The global war on terrorism, the Afghanistan war, and what I'll talk about the Iraq war, were ill-conceived before even any battles were fought. All you needed was some common sense and history to see this. So this begs the question, as you might gather, that if regular citizens like me and many others could see how bad this was going to turn out from the start, why did the, quote, experts not see it and make such huge mistakes? And that is kind of shocking, right? The lay people could see it, but the people who supposedly this was their expertise got it completely wrong. Well, first off, I want to say there were some experts who did see it, but those voices were largely marginalized and their views pushed to the side. The the key thing that I want to get across here is that the incentives in the foreign policy establishment in the U.S. are completely perverse and distorted towards militarism and conflict. The reality is that America is a violent society that loves war. No one likes to admit this, but I I tell the truth. I don't have advertisers. I'm not auditioning for anything. This podcast is just me throwing out some ideas for you all to ponder to make a case about some of the issues in the world. And this is the truth. America is a violent society that actually gets a lot of its national character from war and being the great power, etc., This is obviously particularly since World War II when we have been the great power, when we are the strongest military force in the world. We don't like to admit this, right? It sounds ugly, 
to say we like war because war is supposed to be bad. War is hell. But if you scratch the surface of American ideology, American identity, you know, it's not a surprise that all of our movies are so violent, that we live in one of the most violent societies of gun death and just general types of violence, right? And again, these are high levels of violence in the richest country in the world. We're not Syria. We're not, you know, Somalia. We're not Sudan, right? We're not Colombia during the raging drug cartels of the 80s. We're the richest, most prosperous society in the world, and we're one of the most violent. Because, again, we are a militaristic society that really identifies with war. And when we were attacked on September 11th, 2001, people wanted revenge. There was bloodlust in the air. I was there, okay? I remember it. Even people I knew who were liberal and well-meaning and generally you know, on the pacifist side had bloodlust in their eyes, in their voice. People wanted revenge. And let me say real quickly, that was understandable. I'm not saying that initial response of, holy shit, we were attacked by these you know, Islamic fanatics killing thousands of innocent people in the heart of our, you know, one of our capital cities. People wanted revenge. I get that, right? But what was unforgivable was not cooling it down and thinking soberly about what the proper response would be, but instead inflaming that rage, building on that rage, throwing gasoline on the fire, and turning that rage into an incoherent policy mess that ended up harming our interests, killing hundreds of thousands of innocent people, wrecking societies, and wasting trillions and trillions of dollars, right? So those who suggest massive military responses to things that happen in America usually get pats on the back and accolades because people who have bloodlust and revenge reward those type of actors. And the reality is that when things go wrong, those people don't lose their jobs. Just about everyone who is a cheerleader for the global war on terrorism, the Afghanistan invasion, and the Iraq war still have good jobs and have not lost any of their standing in society. Whether it's Bill Kristol, who has become a never-Trumper, and I respect him, but again, who was one of the most incredible war hawks just spreading lies and disinformation, he's well-respected. No one really, you know, not no one, but he barely gets any pushback. Thomas Friedman. Another cheerleader. And in fact, the whole New York Times was a cheerleader for the Iraq war. None of them have lost jobs. It's quite amazing, right? And so again, think about the incentive. If you're on the pacifist wing, urging caution, sobriety, you get marginalized. If you're rah-rah cheerleading for war, you get kind of lionized. You get on the TV shows. You get the front page headlines. Everyone's patting you in the back. And then when things go wrong, nothing happens to you. Nothing. You keep your job, you keep your prestige, so all the incentives are skewed. There's an asymmetry in America towards militarism. And I remember how voices like mine were dismissed by my friends and my colleagues. And the people who, with influence in the media, expressed them were shot down too. Anyone who wasn't an enthusiastic war supporter was brandished as unpatriotic. It was a quite disgusting spectacle to witness. And to be honest, it still makes me sick to this day. It's a low point for me in America. 
right? And as bad as the Trump era is, and as bad as the fascism and coups, and I mean, the Iraq war and that whole moment after 9-11 is still up there in my mind as one of the lowest points in American history from my lifetime, right? And again, like I said, even ostensibly liberal and sensible organizations like the New York Times were huge cheerleaders for the war, as were many Democrats. So it wasn't just the right wing. Although, again, if it had been Al Gore, who was president, who was, of course, the rightful president since the right wing stole the election and the Supreme Court stole the election, you know, he probably would have done some military stuff. He probably would have bombed Afghanistan. I think it's almost 0% chance he would have invaded Iraq. I can't say that with certainty, but given that they, it was such a convoluted, you know, um, pathway from 9-11 to Iraq that I just, I don't think under any circumstances Al Gore would have done that. Maybe he would have invaded and occupied Afghanistan, I don't know. But I don't even think that. But the reality is it was led by the right wing, Bush, Cheney, and the neocons. But unfortunately, many liberals and people on the left went along with it. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to an article by David Korn, who's you know been at The Nation for a long time, about what it was like being one of the few journalists who got it right. And again, if you weren't here, you don't remember, or you're too young, read it. Because again, it was, it was an amazing period in American history. And even the politicians who voted for it and got it completely wrong are rarely punished for their bad po- foreign policy decisions. Right? Americans vote much more based on their current economic status. And I'll talk about this more later. Right, And of course, finally, the military contractors love it. They love war. They love conflict. They always want more war and conflict. So they spend all of their money on politicians and movements that promote war because it's a no-lose situation for them. Right Now, also, just on a kind of statistically, the sample sizes are small. Even America, which is engaged in a war or, or armed conflict you know, every few years, it's still not a lot. It's not hundreds of data points, right? And so, you know, many people are often wrong, but the average career foreign policy analyst always has an incentive to push for more war because, again, they don't get punished if they get it wrong. They can always say, well, everyone else said it. It's also one of these group things. Well, I wasn't the only one. Those other 150 people said it. So it's very hard to kind of the blame is diffuse and everyone kind of moves on and forgets it, right? People on the dovish side, the pacifist side, the cautious side are always looked down in America because if you're not tough and you're Rambo and you're brandishing a big gun, you're not a real American, right? People in America are incredibly averse to being viewed as weak, right? Even if those people are being smart, we have a macho, tough guy problem in America and it really has served us horribly, right? Um, You know, the, the foreign policy establishment in Washington is called the blob for a reason, right? It basically locked into getting things wrong. And people who get high paid high salaries to make stupid and wrong pronouncements are going to keep making stupid and wrong pronouncements as long as they're not punished. Cheney and others said we'd be greeted as liberators and the war would pay for itself. Think about how wrong that was. The war ended up costing trillions And they said it would pay for itself. The net balance would be zero. So zero to trillions, right? And again, Cheney, you know, he's living his, you know, out his days in Wyoming. 
You know, no cost whatsoever. Bush and Cheney got reelected in 2004. They served out their two terms. No consequences whatsoever because we're not supposed to switch presidents during wartime. So think about the perversion there. Bush, Cheney, get us into a fucked up, incoherent war, but then we're not supposed to elect them out of office because we're not supposed to switch presidents during war. So again, the asymmetry, right? If he hadn't got us into war and people were upset about the economy or something, maybe they would have lost because they were in war that is actually more likely that they get reelected, right? So it's the classic heads I win, tails you lose, right? So when there are almost no costs to being wrong on such a cataclysmic scale, it prompts people to make outlandish claims, right? And of all the elites in American life, the foreign policy elites are some of the worst in terms of their accuracy and their wisdom. They get things wrong more than any group, even more than economists. And I'm an economist, and we get shit wrong all the time. But the foreign policy elites have the worst track record possible. And remember, Trump played on this. He trashed the Iraq war, saying how everyone got suckered. It was one of the key foundations for his America First vision and really endeared him to a lot of these working class whites who had been going along with the war because it was the patriotic thing to do, but were so relieved to finally have a Republican tell them that, you know what, they got suckered and to be angry. Right? So in some ways, the Iraq war absolutely set the foundation for Trump. Right? Now, of course, Trump is horrible. And he's extended this logic to Ukraine now, and he's now Putin's little bitch, which is, of course, horrible. But Trump was right about Iraq, and he fed off the deep resentment that many Americans felt they had been lied to and suckered for over a decade by military and political elites who always promised victory but never delivered it, right? Because it's not possible to deliver, and it never was. That's the scandal. That's the claim I'm making that I will back up. That these missions from the global war on terrorism to Afghanistan and Iraq were destined to fail because their entire premises were false. So with this background, we'll take a short break and I'll come back with the clear and easy to understand reasons why the global war on terror and the Iraq war were destined to fail and what this portends for the future. Okay, so here are a few points to consider about the initial proclamations about the global war on terrorism. First, Al-Qaeda was not a state-sponsored terrorist group. So the global war on terrorism made no sense strategically. Now, yes, the Taliban in Afghanistan 
kind of turned the other way and kind of let them have training camps and was somewhat ideologically aligned with Al-Qaeda. I'm not denying that. But it wasn't like the Taliban was actively supporting them. The Taliban had no larger global ambitions to attack the West. The Taliban is and was a nation nationally focused movement, right? It wants to control the territory of Afghanistan and little more, okay? So again, there was no state-sponsored terrorism that al-Qaeda was linked to. So why embark on a global war against a loose and relatively small network of jihadists who had, again, minimal state backing to no state backing? Right. If a number of countries had attacked us, for example, if a number, if Iran and Afghanistan and Syria and Pakistan had joined forces to fund some international cabal to attack the West, maybe the global war on terrorism would have made sense. Right. But none of that was true. Al Qaeda did most of their training in Germany and the United States. Again, most of the detailed training for the 9-11 attacks was done in our own country. It wasn't done in Afghanistan even. It was done in Germany and the U.S. And at the time of 9-11, we were talking about maybe a few thousand or less jihadists scattered across a few countries. So the frame, global war on terrorism, for a relatively small network of jihadists made no sense on basic, on the basics, the semantics of it made no sense. So the first major error, and again, I said this within days of 9-11, was characterizing the response to 9-11 as some major global war, when it should have been viewed as a new international criminal movement that needed to be fought with intelligence, targeted assassinations, and law enforcement which requires deep cooperation among states. So, for example, if George Bush had said, we are creating a new department within the, you know, the Department of Defense to coordinate a global movement and fight against international jihadists, we're going to cooperate with the intelligence services around the world with all countries, station more agents, get people to monitor communications on, you know, on these channels, we want more Arab-speaking people in our law enforcement. We are dedicating more resources to tracking these people down, finding out what they're planning and where necessary, going into those countries and either assassinating them or apprehending them. Fine. I would have thought that was great. I would have applauded Bush, right? But that is the far cry from a global war on terrorism, right? And again, War on terrorism. War is a form of terror. So a terror on terrorism? Like the semantics didn't even make any sense. It was just dumb. It was clearly a bumper sticker bullshit thing to get people riled up and be ambiguous. So you could just kind of talk tough, carry a big stick, and kind of feed into the bloodlust. We're in a global war on terror, right? Not smart, right? It allowed Bush and Cheney to grandstand. Right. And it wasn't as satisfying, you know, to do a global, uh, you know, movement with intelligence and law enforcement than laying to waste full countries of Muslims and brown people. And now, again, I'm not saying that Bush and Cheney at their core 
where it's so deeply racist that they want to just go kill Muslims. I'm not saying that. But the reality is what we did to Iraq and Afghanistan would have never happened if it wasn't brown Muslim people. Period. End of story. So it's not because they were brown and Muslim that we did it, but we never would have done it if it had been white, you know, Christian countries. Impossible. Right? So that's point number one. Al-Qaeda, the people who attacked us on 9-11, did not require a global war, but a global police and intelligence operation. Point number two is that Americans don't have the interest, attention span, or desire to engage in nation building. Period. End of story. So let's do a little on the first Iraq war just to set the context. Bush won, George Bush's father. He, he fought the first war against Saddam in 1991 when Saddam invaded Kuwait. He got an international coalition together to kick Saddam out of Kuwait. He was incredibly popular after that victory. Okay, That was a true victory. There were limited aims. Get Saddam out of Kuwait. We achieved that. Put aside the horrible betrayal, betrayal of the Shia population who were called to rise up against Saddam, who were then slaughtered because we left and didn't back them up. So we should have never told them to rise up if we weren't going to back them up. That's another huge stain on American history. But Bush's approval ratings right after the war, a year before the 1992 election, were sky high, hitting 90% in March 1991. Okay? Now think about that. Approval ratings of a president in 90%. These numbers would only be matched by George Bush II after 9-11. And in 2023, these numbers are unheard of. I don't think there is anything that could happen right now. If there was another 9-11, Biden's approval ratings would not hit 90% because the country is so polarized. You'd have 30% of the, you'd have the MAGA people thinking he did it on purpose and it was an inside job. So 90% approval ratings a year, year and a half before an election. But a year later, Bush the first lost his election to a relative no-name named Bill Clinton. Why? Because of a mild recession. So this is the fact. Americans simply don't care much about foreign policy. Most Americans couldn't find Iraq or Afghanistan on a map. I'm not happy about that. I'm not bragging about that. It's just a fucking fact, right? They care much more about their immediate economic prospects. It's the economy, stupid. If George Bush won and had a strong economy, he would have won re-election. He didn't, so he lost despite having prosecuted a successful war a year earlier. Now, fast forward to today. Despite occupying Afghanistan for 20 years and Iraq for a decade, how many Americans know anything about what's going on in either of those countries? Almost none. Even I don't know much, especially about Iraq, and I'm well informed. When has Iraq been on the front page of the paper? I mean, think about that. We invaded this country. We spent trillions we murdered hundreds of thousands of people, rebuilt their society. And a decade later, nobody knows a fuck about Iraq, right? Nobody knows anything. And neither the Iraq invasion or the Afghanistan invasion has significantly impacted election since 2004 in almost 20 years. 
The 2008 election was about the financial crisis mostly. 2012 was about a second term for Obama and how the recovery was going. 2016 was about immigration and the wall and, you know, and Hillary's emails. 2020 was about COVID and Trump. Even the 22 midterms have absolutely nothing to do with Afghanistan, despite people writing these hyperbolic articles in the summer of 2021 saying that Afghanistan was Biden's Saigon moment. I mean, I was just laughing when I read that. Huge, hyperbolic, it's just like, I'm, I knew the day of the Afghan withdrawal, it wouldn't mean a fucking thing. Because Americans simply do not care. They have the attention span of a gnat. Okay? So to finish point number two, Americans never had the attention span, nor the commitment for either rebuilding Afghanistan or Iraq, and would never support multi-decades-long occupations that were costly in both blood and treasure. So even if the theory was, you know, even if in theory the wars were just, which they were not, there was no way they could be successfully completed because they're decades-long projects and Americans don't have that attention span. These, those occupations had no chance of success and this is the definition of moral and intellectual bankruptcy when you embark upon something of this magnitude that has no chance of succeeding. It's shocking how few people saw what was so obvious. Point number three is that it was abundantly clear from early on that Bush and Cheney were incompetent and they would exploit the war for right-wing political purposes. To trust that George Bush II, this ignoramus who knew nothing about foreign affairs, who was accompanied by a bunch of war hawks who claimed these wars would be easy walks in the park, would lead to a remaking of these societies into democracies, into liberal democracies, was the height of foolishness, naivete, and downright stupidity. And then when we got the mission accomplished fiasco, in the, you know, a few months after the Iraq invasion, it just put an exclamation on it, right? They tried to make Bush 2 into some top gun figure. The guy who would, you know, use his connections to go into the National Guard to avoid serving in Vietnam was now some top gun, you know, macho guy. And they declared victory when the war was just beginning, right? This was, again, so obvious that these people were not in it for real. They were not serious, Right, And this happened as we were continued to be mired in Afghanistan. So we were fighting two wars at the same time. Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires for a reason. Russia at its military peak couldn't win there. But somehow we would just stick it out and it would all be okay. And we'd transform top, the, you know, Afghan, which had been raped by, you know, racked by war for decades, into some model democracy. The levels of corruption involved in these projects, the tens of billions of dollars of cash just given out to fucking warlords and terrorists to try to, you know, to try to get one person against the other, to get this warlord against this other. I mean, I don't think the full extent of the corruption and malfeasance of these campaigns will ever be fully realized. And I think it's, it, would, it would break most people. It's just too huge and cataclysmic. To, to fully comprehend. And this brings me to point number four, which is there are on only two successful democ democratic examples 
where America turned fascist imperial states into true democracies from war. That was Germany and Japan after World War II. And this is what the war hawks always use when they say, you know, if only we had stayed longer, we could have won. We still have bases in Germany. We still have bases in Japan. We've been there 70 years. American can tolerate that. They said this, by the way, in Korea and Vietnam, too. But, of course, those are peaceful societies. Our troops aren't being bombed. It's a very small cost. And those are good strategic bases to be for in Europe and for Asia. The problem with this analogy is that in these two cases, they only work because we completely obliterated those societies until they unconditionally surrendered. We purposely bombed huge numbers of civilians, including in two atomic attacks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, right? These societies had clear rulers, emperors, or the Fuhrer in, in Germany's case, who could surrender, right? They were relatively homogenous societies that could surrender after they were beaten into oblivion. Both Afghanistan and Iraq are rife with factional components and different ethnic conflicts. They don't fall under a single banner. There is no way we could have done to either country what we did to Germany or Japan. And neither of them had a leader who could have surrendered unconditionally to U.S. forces in the name of the whole nation. World War II was a unique historical moment that will never be repeated. Right? You can't bomb Afghanistan and Iraq and purposely kill hundreds of thousands of civilians and burn the country to the ground and then have a leader unconditionally surrender and the people are so exhausted that you can then rebuild it. That's just not possible in the modern era. It was, there was never the intention or the possibility that we could have done that. So in summary, the entire intellectual and moral framework for the global war on terrorism made no sense. It was a huge misguided overreaction based on false premises, injustice, and a right-wing neocon cabal that wanted to kind of feed the bloodlust for a larger political project. And it turned out to be counterproductive, right? It turns out Americans are not committed to decades-long conflicts. They don't care much about foreign possible policy and what they could we could never achieve the type of surrender that led to model democracies in Germany and Japan. And also to add one final point, this is what bin Laden wanted. He wanted us to overreact and do damage to ourselves. He we did more damage to ourselves through the global war on terrorism than bin Laden and Al-Qaeda could have ever dreamed of in a million years. We did it. They prompted us, they poked us, and we fell right into the trap because of our militarism and our lack of reflection and sobriety. The few who still try to rationalize the global war on terrorism and the Afghan and Iraq invasions are lost in self-delusion and simply cannot face the clear facts. These wars were crimes against humanity, and what is a grave injustice is that Bush and Cheney have not been tried for war crimes. They should be rotting in jail for the rest of their small, pitiful lives. After the break, I'll come back with the antidote.
gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! Okay, so for the antidote today, I want to make the recommendation that we all be very, very skeptical of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Most of what they sell is bullshit, and they never pay any cost for being wrong. So their incentives are to hype threats all the time. That's how you get attention from the media and money from the war profiteers. It's up to us as citizens to be informed and only vote for people who will use reason and sober analysis to guide foreign policy. This is tough, and our record is quite bad. But for example, Ukraine is a just conflict, and we should all support that. I've made that case on multiple occasions. And Joe Biden so far is showing reason and common sense. He cut our losses in Afghanistan, and he is fighting fascism in a just cause in Europe. Compared to other U.S. leaders, this is A+. But he was wrong about Iraq. He supported it, right? So again, he's come around, and that's great to see. But we must remain vigilant, especially with regards to China, which is the new threat that the blob will overhype for bad ends if we're not careful. Let me be clear. I think China does represent some threats. I think there are some serious things we need to take into consideration. But it's, it is not a benevolent actor. But the risks of escalation and more warmongering are much greater than the risks of taking a calmer, more nuanced approach. And I'll talk about that more and perhaps bring in some China experts on a future episode. So with that, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of the week. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Um, subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and now it is also on Amazon Music if you use Amazon. And with that, everybody, uh, take care, be well, stay safe.